The show that doesn't grab them by the but does occasionally kick them in the ball. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show live from the city of Pukalani, Hawaii. Aloha and welcome to it. And today's episode, we're going to cover a little bit of the shade over Washington, D.C. Oh, the shade of it all. From Melania Trump to Donald Trump himself and all of the misgivings of the white chaos house and more. Plus, we'll talk a little bit about Jim Acosta and, God, we've got so many stories to talk about. But before we get to any of that, some brief introductions are in line. Hello and welcome to it. This is my show. I am your host, a critical thinker, problem solver, guy just left of normal insane, and my name is Shaggy Jenkins. You can find anything and everything about me at my website shaggyjenkins.com or wherever fine social media is trolled uh, just look for at shaggy live a brief update on where some of our correspondents are this week as you know some of the most devastating fires of all time have been ravaging california and usually on today's show we're joined by our chico correspondents But because of the conditions there, uh, especially with how fast the fires are moving, and at the latest update, it looks somewhere around, I don't know, about 30 to 40 percent contained at this point, but winds and changing conditions could always cause another flare-up. But... For everyone that is worried about people in California, let me just go ahead and say, before we get to our news of the day, even, even when it involves correspondence of this show always 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 check the legitimacy of the charity that you are going to contribute to a lot of people are setting up gofundmes and things like that some of them a lot of them are on the up and up but in the rare and i do mean this statistically speaking In the rare case that there is a nefarious kind of fishing for cash using national tragedy sort of thing, make sure that you don't just ignore it, but you report it as well. Because when it comes to American charity, we are a very giving country. When it comes to America's scrutiny, well, we probably need a little bit more of it. But for everybody that's been affected by the California wildfires that have set up GoFundMes and things like that, you know what? I want to give you a hand, so drop me an email, shaggyjenkins at gmail.com, and uh, give me a link to your GoFundMe, and I'll put it up through our social media and hopefully get you some much-needed relief. Because that relief, it appears, this week will not come from the guise of the federal government. And the reason I say that is because it seems that Donald Trump has been engaged in, once again, using something that is completely unrelated to something else for his own political gain. And when it comes to the case of California wildfires, Not only are governmental officials, celebrities by and large, but normal everyday residents who have lost everything are kind of, um, dare I say, miffed at the president's callous response to their, their plight. Now, of course, you probably know by now Donald Trump blamed the whole thing on something that was uh, nothing to do with anything, forgetting by the way, that his his government, not the state government, was over the things that he was criticizing. That was a little bit of a oopsie moment, maybe a faux pas on his part. Well, I better not use French. We know how 
Donald Trump feels about the French these days. But when it comes to the California wildfires and things like that, uh, there's so many angles to go on this rapidly un- uh, unraveling story. But the biggest thing is clear. When it comes to the national response, by and large, the Trump reaction to the California wildfires has dared I say, been a little atypical from the office of presidency. Now, most of the time, you know, this is a point where anybody that is a staunch supporter of Donald Trump will come out and say, no, 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 he's thinking about the welfare of people and really trying to attack the root cause of that. Well, I mean, come on. The the conditions of levees were the root cause of Katrina, and when FEMA and stuff tried to go out of it, everybody derided George W. Bush. Yeah, I know, I know, but George W. Bush is such a hateable character. Well, he was back then. Now? Yeah, not so much. But even a guy like George Bush, who was accused of being a little bit of a political cowboy, he did express some sort of warmth, some sort of sympathy, some sort of, God, dare I say, actual graciousness, when it came to the aftermath of natural disasters in the United States. So, too, did President Clinton, President H.W. Bush, and everybody remembers, God, how many bad speeches, I should say, good speeches over bad occasions that came from President Ronald Reagan. Uh, One of those, my childhood memory being the most prevalent, the speech that he had to give in, in the wake of the Challenger, shuttle disaster that claimed the lives of all seven astronauts. There has been, by and large, from the White House, a reverence that it does not seem that Donald Trump is embracing ever. And I know that it shouldn't surprise any of us, but the fact of the matter remains, when it comes to real death, like right now, we're really struggling to find hundreds of people that kind of got lost in the fast-moving fires. They're, they're not confirmed dead, but let's just say they're not confirmed found either. And the official death toll is creeping up towards 50 at this moment, and things are not looking well as far as the devastation to property and personal life. And it seems that in the aftermath of anything like that, you know the old adage that your parents used to... T- to tell you if you can't say something nice don't say nothing at all it would seem that that would kind of at this point be the preferred modus operandi of the white house at least to everybody in california and the nation by and large if you can't show sympathy just show silence now Silence has lately not been a real good fan, or should I say a real good friend, of the White House because as much as Donald Trump throughout his administration has tried and tried and tried again to kind of go against leakers, it seems that the latest batch of leaks around the White House point to... I want to say that it kind of resembles like those shows like uh, Jerry Springer that you used to watch. You know, they were really, really, really tumultuous, and then somebody had to come along and talk talk sense into them, except the part where the people come and talk sense to them hasn't happened yet. That is exactly what's happening in the White House right now. Uh, It it seems like amid a, a, a furious kind of reaction to the midterms. Now, 
I know what you're thinking, but Shaggy, Donald Trump told us that the midterms were a glowing success because they managed to keep the Senate, but... <sighs> Let's just go ahead and point out how much investigative power, how much subpoena power, and how much legislative power the House of Representatives has. And, of course, we all know how the, the two houses of Congress, Senate and the House of Representatives, love kicking bills back and forth to each other when they don't agree. Yeah, it's going to be a fun next two years. But the thing is, is that Donald Trump has always kind of tried to maintain a, a cone of silence when it come, comes to internal relations of the, uh, well, the internal White House administrative staff and, of course, the support staff and cabinet. However, lately, it, it's came to light that things are getting a little petty at the White House, including kind of in this massive backlash this this reaction that the president is actually having to the results of the midterms that well you know the old term the old saying the old adage of the heads will roll well that's exactly the phase of the administration we're at right now because rumor has it that Donald Trump is seeking to get a bunch of people that he disagrees with out and if you think that this is just Donald Trump's personal vendetta, hold on. We got to bring up the seldom talked about Melania Trump. But before we get to her, let's talk about Donald Trump, the president. When it comes to the midterm elections, on the surface, Donald Trump has kind of tried to portray those as being good victories because they managed to keep the Senate. But by and large, and let's just look at the map across the United States, even in heavily gerrymandered districts, Democrats picked up some pretty big sweeping numbers. Now, when Donald Trump made his press conference and, of course, attacked Jim Acosta from CNN, Later on, rebuking his presidential credit—I mean, his uh, press credentials. We'll talk about that in just a sec. But when he was—he was there. That was a piece of good performance art of, of of trying to maintain control. But here's the thing: let's look back at the track record of Donald Trump getting upset in public and maintaining his composure. Yeah, that hasn't been happening at all over the last couple of weeks. Now. When it comes to the people that have upset Trump the most, one of those is the director of Homeland, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, Kristen Nielsen. Now, famously, she has been the lady that has been very cold when approached with questions about the child separation policy, which, once again, if you look at all of the balls in play, as it were, none of them should have went to the goal of child separation. But <laughs> she just wasn't that good at deflecting questions about it and wasn't that good at covering up. Remember, it was under Kristen Nielsen's kind of public statements that uh, reporters and journalists were able to suss things out and figure out the extent of the child separation policy. But because she didn't really go for the jugular, because she really didn't try to slam dunk this as it's our way in the Trump administration or no way at all, Donald Trump seems a little bit upset with her, including, and this is kind of a weird one, 
the migrant caravan and the lack of funding for the southern border wall. These are all kind of things that Trump has glommed on to the failures of Nielsen, his director of the Department of Homeland Security. Not so much attributing these failures to himself. No, that would be too realistic and rooted in reality and facts and empirical observational data. You get the gist, right? Okay. Uh, but when it comes to other people upsetting Donald Trump, it's not just his director of Depart uh, the Department of Homeland Security. It's also his chief of staff, John Kelly, who is... Let's just be honest. He's not really kind of a likable guy when it comes to the world of Donald Trump. Let me explain. Donald Trump loves, loves the sycophant. He loves the mindless um, idolizer, the person that just thinks that Trump is walking on sunshine, much like that 1980s song that I now have somehow put in your head. I'm sorry for the next four hours of your life. Getting back to this, with Donald Trump, he does tend to favor those people that always, always, always kind of sit around and reflect the greatness of himself. And John Kelly hasn't been one of those guys. As a matter of fact, since his taking of the position over Rents, uh, Reince Priebus, he's kind of been... A little notorious for being the guy that everybody expected to come in and put the brakes on some of the craziness of Donald Trump. Now, some of those brakes included um, putting a halt to the reactionatory tweets at the middle of the night, the going after news agencies, the, the more a funneling down and talking about agenda time and time again and, and, and becoming, as a president, Teleprompter Trump. You, you know the Trump that I'm talking about. Shortly after John Kelly took his position as the chief of staff, Donald Trump's speeches started to sound a little bit presidential, and then we all noticed, wait a minute, he's reading that speech from a teleprompter. John Kelly had a little bit uh, of something to do with that. But as time has went on, just like with a wild stallion, Donald Trump really kind of chafes under the um, weight of the bit in his mouth and any sort of kind of control that, that, that John Kelly has tried to wrestle over Donald Trump has always kind of resulted in these weird little lulls of Trump kind of making sense, kind of saying things that are a little centrist and almost presidential, and then all of a sudden going into wild, wild tirades against people that he perceived to be not only professional enemies, but political and personal enemies as well. And not only his own personal enemies, enemies of people that Donald Trump sought to keep endeared and engendered to his inner circle. So when it comes to John Kelly, he has, for the most part, kind of only been moderately successful in, in what he's been well appointed to do. And let's not forget, when it comes to some of the other more outlandish behaviors of Donald Trump, the taking advice from Fox News correspondents, Kelly kind of thinks that's a little dumb. Uh, when it comes to the appointment of a guy so warmongering scary that George W. Bush 
a cowboy of politics said, eh, pass. John Bolton, conflicts between Kelly and Bolton have been, well, <laughs> if this was Gossip Girl, they would have been all the talk. Uh, seriously, so many people and so many anonymous sources always come out with these contentious kind of accounts of uh, encounters between Kelly and especially people like John Bolton. And that is where we need to bring in Melania Trump. I know what you're thinking. What? Uh, pay attention. You see, John Bolton, when he came in, not only kind of upset the balance that John Kelly was trying to establish in the White House, you know, the calm, measured, authoritarian, presidential, reserved delivery of the message. Uh, John Bolton, a firebrand of, from the past, basically came in and brought one of his assistants. Now, her name, uh, Mira, yeah, well... Turns out that she's in charge of a couple of different things. And one of those different things that she's in charge of <gasps> is travel. Now, I don't know if you know this, but when it comes to the uh, <clears throat> White House traveling, they do have to get, at least when it comes to uh, people that they want in their entourage outside of official diplomats, state representatives, officials from government, what have you, right? Um, they have to have special permission from people like, well, yeah, John Bolton. Now, they, they both sit on there of uh, the National Security Council, right? Now, this is the thing. When it comes to Melania Trump, she has beef uh, with this lady. Let me see if I can get her name. Mira Raquel. Uh, oh, Ricardel. Ricardel. Okay, anyway, I was like, well. Oh. When you live in Hawaii, you very much have to double-check name pronunciations, trust me. Uh, but when it comes to Ricardel, she's the uh, deputy to National Security Advisor John Bolton. She is the one that, when it comes to traveling, approves whether or not somebody gets travel in first class travel with the First Lady, inclusion in Secret Service protections, inclusion in official accommodations for the entourage that the United States is putting out on diplomatic uh, soil, and, and, and of course a host of other things. But Melania never really liked Ricardel's uh, um, kind of balking at her request, some of them being of having uh, certain members within her executive staff come along on trips like that Africa trip not too long ago, and not being able, no matter how much she stomped her foot and crossed her arms and said, I would tell my husband Donald, no matter how many times she did it, well, she couldn't get clearance for her executive staff. So it seems kind of funny that this week, the official statement comes out, quote, It is the position of the office of the First Lady that she no longer, and they're talking about Mira Ricardel, the honor of serving in this White House. Now think about that. Used to in this country, the honor of serving in a White House was something you would actually 
feel honored to have. Uh, not so much now, and not so much between Mira and, and John Bolton and John Kelly and, and, and Melania. Because when it comes down to it, a lot of the rift that is happening in the White House right now is a lot of petty political backlash of people feeling you've done me wrong. And when it comes to Melania Trump's beef, here's the thing. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Oh, oh, Shaggy, now now Melania's trying to come into power and she's going to be like America's Imelda Marcus. And, okay, uh, Marcus owns less shoes, first off. And second of all, um, no, it, it won't work like that. However, if you are one of those people that is like, this is kind of unprecedented, keep in mind, it is not damn near every first lady throughout history, which, by the way, if you don't know this, the president makes about $400,000 a year. The first lady makes nothing. Zero dollars for her position. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is gender equality in the United States in a nutshell. But when it comes to the first lady, the first lady has had kind of uh, reputation throughout a bunch of different administrations of always kind of balking or at least being behind kind of the animosity of certain people leading up to their firing. I mean, Nancy Reagan had her enemies. Hillary Clinton had hers. Um, Lady Bird Johnson. You get the you get the picture, right? It's not something uncommon, but what is kind of unprecedented in this case is the reasons why. It's not so much a domineering of the president's schedule as it was with Nancy Reagan, who needed an astrologer to tell her exactly when it was okay for Ronnie to sit down with Gorbachev, so anytime official plans were made that were outside of her mandates, woo, the hell it was erased. But when it comes to Melania's beef, this seems to be over more of a, I know you're probably sick of hearing this N-word, a little bit of narcissism, of her wanting to be able to travel her way like she did in the, the private sector and extend as a matter of, look how powerful I am, uh, certain protections and amenities that were be paid for by us, by the taxpayers. Because keep in mind, that's one of the reasons that people like Ricardell and, and John Bolton have been very much scrutinizing official travel requests. Donald Trump's travel budget is exuberant, to say the least. So any way that they can shave pennies here and there, of course, National Security Council, they're going to figure out a way to do it. Otherwise, they don't have a budget to operate under. I mean... You really know that the money's coming from somewhere, right? Okay, with that said, the, the president and the first lady are using the, the, the backlash anger of the midterms as a way of empowering themselves, of getting rid of their political enemies. Yay, we can just throw the babies out with the bathwater. Here's the problem. Who will replace these people? Because you remember how it was when we went from Priebus to Kelly, right? Everybody thought, oh, God, well, you know, Kelly is going to have a contentious time. And yeah, we were right. He's not going to really like working for the president. Um, I think he called him an effing idiot at one point. So there is that. 
uh, he's he's not going to have an easy time getting the president to comply with the uh, situations that he wants to set up and getting the agenda message out in controlled ways. These are all things that Kelly is going to fail at. And yeah, yeah, all of those arguments were right. But I am going to challenge here to have yourself a very scary little thought. Are you ready? Who will Trump select next? Because it seems like these ousters, Melania's beef aside, when it seems, when you look at all of these, I should say, it seems to me, and to most people that are, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, and everybody else has kind of written op-eds about this in the last 24 hours, it seems like Donald Trump is really sick and tired of being surrounded by logic, by reality by being forced to uphold a standard outside of whatever assumed standard he wishes to take on that day. He doesn't like his time being dominated, and that's exactly what the uh, office of the President of the United States will do to you. It will dominate your time. And with all of these things, it, it kind of adds up to this frumpy, miserable, trumpy president. And frumpy, trumpy there isn't really going to select anybody by by any sort of stretch of the imagination. He is not going to select anybody that is going to be reasonable to the GOP, to the government at large, or really to me and you. Because what it seems like with getting rid of Kelly with getting rid of Nelson, with gunning for other kind of political enemies that he has right now still left in the House and Senate and gearing up for a Democratic-controlled House, when you look at all of these factors, what Donald Trump is trying to do right now is surround himself with sycophants to create, as it were, something that Republicans have always derided, a safe place for him and his ideals. So if you're thinking that the next people that are going to come along are going to be any more sensible, they won't be sensible to government or us, but they'll make perfect sense to one Donald J. Trump. Stay close. Coming up, we've got a lot more to cover. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show. I'm Scientific American podcast editor Steve Mursky, and here's a short piece from the November 2018 issue of the magazine in the section called Advances, Dispatches from the Frontiers of Science, Technology, and Medicine. The article is titled Quick Hits, and it's a rundown of some science and technology stories from around the globe, compiled by editorial contributor Angkor Palawal. From Indonesia, Jakarta is sinking fast. Indonesia's capital is built on ground that's subsiding as a result of flooding and sea level rise, and about 95% of North Jakarta could be underwater by 2050, 
the government is now building a 32-kilometer seawall to protect the city. From the Netherlands, the world's first offshore dairy farm is expected to open near the port of Rotterdam by the end of the year. The idea is to produce food closer to urban areas where two-thirds of people will live by 2050 and to reduce pollution caused by transporting food over long distances. From South Africa, the country has completed Meerkat, the largest and most powerful radio telescope in the Southern Hemisphere. The telescope, part of the multi-continent Square Kilometer Array, will study how hydrogen gas moves into galaxies to fuel star formation. The CAT in Meerkat stands for Karoo Array Telescope. From Nigeria, the nation has launched its first renewable energy association with the goal of generating about 40% of the country's total energy from green sources by 2030. More than 50% of the population currently lacks access to any energy sources. And from the U.S., scientists mapped one of the world's fastest-moving underwater faults in Alaska, which has a slip rate of 5 centimeters a year. These data could help coastal communities in Alaska and Canada prepare for earthquakes and tsunamis. That was Quick Hits by Angkor Palawal. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo Today I'm going to help parents translate teen slang. Now, when a teen says something is on fleek, it's exactly like saying, that's rad. It simply means that something is awesome or cool. Another one is totes. It's exactly like saying, totally, just shorter. As in, I totes love going to the mall with Becca. Another word you might hear is jelly. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will think you're, um, rad just the same. To learn more, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. More news, less alternative facts. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show live from the city of Pukalani, Hawaii. Aloha and welcome back. If you miss any part of this show, remember, you can check our podcast out on Spotify, on Stitcher, Become a member over at Patreon. Just look for the Shaggy Jenkins Show. Find out all of this and more at our website, shaggyjenkins.com. And for everybody that wants to follow us on social media, specifically me, and let me go ahead and warn you, it is not your average social media account. There's a lot of, well, there's a lot of lot of stuff. Uh, Just look for me. Wherever fine social media is trolled at Shaggy Live. Getting back into some of our big stories of the day, I got to talk about this very interesting story that a lot of people on a lot of other news agencies have been talking about, the consistent rise of the hate crime in the United States. And okay, now we've got to talk about those hate crimes in a very painful and realistic sense, okay? Let's let's go through just some of the numbers, all right? When the latest statistics came out, uh, you know, from, well, American law for enforcement agencies and, and just a couple of different polls, 
what they have found is the perception of and the actual on the books commitment of things that can be labeled as hate crimes has had a third year of consecutive growth. Now, the growth they're saying is somewhere between 17 and 20 percent from 2017 to the figures that we are now seeing so far, thus far, in 2018. Okay, now that number, I mean, you're, you're talking about a almost 20% increase there. That, that number does sound kind of alarming and does kind of sound like, <gasps> ooh, but let me dissect something here for you. Because a lot of people, and pay attention, because if you're a listener to this show, you're always thinking, wow, Shaggy's always on the attack of, of, of this and that and the other. But now I've got to have a, a little moment with those irresponsible users of social media that get this story that say that, well, hate crimes are back on the rise again. And it looks to be a trend that started under Donald Trump's campaign has, has trended up ever since we've seen Trump in the national spotlight. And OK, you do have a point that is correct. But statistically speaking, when it comes to the rise of hate crimes in the United States, I'm going to say something very shocking. These numbers that represent a big jump in growth for the last three consecutive years have less to do with the committing of hate crimes and more to do with police departments, sheriff departments, peace officers across the country actually recognizing and identifying crimes as such. In other words, a lot of departments, over a thousand police departments across the United States, have recently started actually defining certain crimes committed as hate crimes. And I know what you're thinking, well, uh, hate crimes have been around for a long time. They should have been on this. They, it's not the, no, it is. Okay, I know you're going to try to say, no, it's Donald Trump and it's, it's Republicans and it's white supremacists. But I told you in the show two weeks ago, white supremacists are only like 6% of the country's population. We outnumber them by a lot. It's just that they're a little bit more vocal and enjoying a little bit more gaslighting from the uh, person in the White House right now. But by the numbers, when we look at these statistics about hate crimes specifically, we're not actually seeing a real increase in the hate crimes. We're only just now seeing people identifying crimes. As hate crimes. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, so that means that hate crimes aren't up. No, that's not what I'm saying. Remember, I said that this was going to be kind of a painful segment for all of us to go through because <sighs> white people don't tend to look at a lot of actions that happen against people of color as hate crimes. They They've become so whitewashed in what they think is offensive and inoffensive that they don't know when something is legitimately being done with hate and, and when they use that whole, oh, he was just in a moment of passion. He was just angry at that. Those were just words, but words matter. 
and to a lot of police departments across the United States, they are now starting to pick up on this trend. So this big jump in hate crimes that we have, I'm going to tell you something scary. That's not a jump in crimes. There's a lot more crimes out there that can be considered hate crimes that we're not talking about. We haven't learned how to truthfully define hate crimes in this country. That is something that, if you are a minority, should scare the bejesus out of you. And if you are somebody that is Caucasian, that is something that should give you pause. Something that you should really sit down and contemplate. Because right now we have an administration that likes to gloss over things so much so that Let's be honest, nobody's really talking about that Mississippi lady and her whole lynching party joke anymore. Although, if this was a different time, like maybe two years ago, oh my God, we would still be talking about it because what a horrendous thing to say publicly. But we've entered the, the, under, the underside. You know, we, we've gone to the dark place, as they say, and get out especially with Caucasians in this country not realizing that hate crimes are something that have been prevalent for decades, for a very, very long time. And by not reporting them as hate crimes, by trying to cover up and be complicit in the actions of people that possibly are racially motivated to do crimes, possibly are white supremacist. If you have been an officer of the law and you've made a report to kind of water things down, you are complicit in the rise of white supremacy. And that's not something you want to be associated with, even though, come on, let's just be honest, the pictures of cops that are supporters of the alt-right with racist tattoos, with neo-Nazi tattoos and uh, giving little Nazi salutes while in full uniform, those cases have all picked up. And I know, I know you're thinking, but Shaggy, if it's a case of reporting with the the case of hate crimes, what? Yeah, it's the same thing. Neo-Nazis and white supremacists have been hiding behind badges for years. And if you're just now catching on to that reality, gasp! But it's the truth. And now, through the advent and, uh, you know, widespread popularity of things like social media, and let's just be honest, guys not really knowing how to censor themselves when they engage in stupid behavior, we are seeing more of the picture that, if you're a minority in the United States, you've been living through for years. Yeah, I saw online a really good joke about all this where it was talking about how white people always ask minorities, why do you have to act like your ancestors who were wronged by the law and the government? We are not them. And then the people of color look back at the white people and goes, what do you mean, my parents? Because that is the truth. But when it comes to reporting these hate crime numbers and when it comes to outing racist cops... The United States is getting better at it, and we're starting to find more and more clever ways, including just checking somebody's Instagram, (laughs) of finding them. But at the same time, by no means should you look at this story when it talks about the rise of hate crimes in the United States. You should not look at it as so one-dimensional. It's not just about 
the hate crimes themselves increasing, which, I will not lie, they are. But it is a bigger, bigger issue because for decades, for the longest time, crimes committed in the United States against people of color have been underreported as actually being hate crimes. Now, in the next year or so, we are going to see this number go up again. And once again, it will be attributed to more so police departments recognizing hate crimes as hate crimes than it is an actual big increase in racially motivated hate crimes or any hate crimes. I mean, there's homophobia out there, too. And let's just go ahead and say, if you're a homophobic, that's pretty dumb. That's all I got to say about that. But uh, getting back into uh, some of the, uh, the, the the issues with this is that here's the thing. As much as in the United States, we, we, we kind of want to hold ourselves up to a higher standard and say that, yes, every day is getting better like the Beatles song, which... Okay, if you think the Beatles are an American group, shame on you. But uh, we want to be those type of people. It's getting better all the time. Society is making good progress all the time. But no, it's been terrible all the time. It's been terrible from day one if you are a person of color in this country. And until we get to the point where we're truthfully calling things what they are, their lives will not improve. And if their lives won't improve... Me and you shouldn't rest at night until it does. That's some BS, man. Uh, Let's get into another story before I run out of time, because here's the thing. Going from hate crimes to something that is just a little bit out of the norm. Yesterday on the program, me and Ron Pertee brought up Stan Lee. And no, I'm not going to sit here and geek out for the rest of the show. However, I do want to say that something very interesting has happened over the last 24 hours. And and that is, when it comes to minority communities, Stan Lee was kind of the voice of the disenfranchised for them on the DL for the longest time. Now, uh, of course, suburban kids like me, yeah, we got exposed to people of color in comic books like, well, Cap's friend, Falcon. You remember the Falcon, that red and white uniform? Okay. Uh, well, there was also people like the Black Panther who, in his second episode, beat up the KKK, which is, if you're a kid from the South, was cool. <laughs> God, who didn't want to do that when we were growing up? But... Stan Lee, for the longest time, used these characters, not just characters of color, but used these characters to educate children that normally weren't included in society, you know, minority neighborhoods. He wanted a way of including them in the bolder narrative of America. And at so many times in his life, he used his platform at least when it came to the comic books and the world that his superheroes maintained. Because remember, we brought this up, that when it comes to those crazy creations 
uh, Stan Lee actually used all of those as allegories for social issues, except Peter Parker, who was clearly, uh, he was puberty, guys. Think about it. Body goes through a lot of changes. Everything's kind of sticky and icky and you're full of insecurities. Yeah, Spider-Man's secretly about puberty. I hope I didn't ruin that for you. Uh, but when it comes to other titles, including titles like the X-Men, uh, well, that was Stan Lee's kind of underhanded way of dealing with bigotry. Now, this is the thing. In 1968, he wrote something in his his little section in the back of the comic books. And, and if you grew up reading Marvel comic books, you knew about the, the, the Stan soapbox. It was when you always got that little, here's the word from Stan the man, and at the end of it, Excelsior. But in one of those in 1968, he wrote this. Let's lay it right on the line. Bigotry and racism are among the deadliest social ills plaguing the world today. But unlike a team of costume supervillains, they, they can't be halted with a punch in the snoot or a zap from a ray gun. The only way to destroy them is to expose them, to reveal them for the insidious evils they really are. The bigot is an unreasoning hater, one who hates blindly, fanatically, and indiscriminately. If his hang-up is black men, he hates all black men. If a redhead once offended him, he hates all redheads. If a foreigner beat him to a job, he's down on all foreigners. He hates people he's never seen. Think about that. In 1968, in one little corner of a comic book, Stan Lee let us know exactly the kind of person that he was going to be. And if you think that, oh, well, that was the young, idealistic uh, Stan Lee. Surely when he got older, he changed his views. Are you kidding me? Stan Lee used to release videos telling people, I haven't forgot who the enemies really are. And in Caucasian suburban neighborhoods where Marvel comics were really popular, a lot of those kids weren't smart enough to catch what was really happening in those books. They were being geared for a better society. Because Stan Lee, one of the things that he always tried to do at Marvel Comics was include every walk of life he could find. I mean, I, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but Alpha Flight from Canada has had a gay main character since the 1990s. Think about that. You're probably like, Alpha who? Okay, maybe I do read too much comic books. But the point is clear. When it came to Stan Lee as far as what he meant to fans, a lot of people online are looking over their, their own collections right now and they're, they're with their own friends and they're mourning and crying. But when it comes to minorities across this country, across the world really, Morning Stan Lee is something just a little different. A guy that championed inclusion. A guy that tried to deal with the ills of society through print and text and mutants and bad guys and super-powered, gamma-radiated, don't-make-me-angry monsters. Stan Lee tried to tell us how to be better people while giving us a lot of mindless entertainment. And it's in his passing, now that we're starting to reflect back at the things that he's truly left behind, 
one of the things that you can say about Stan Lee, and one of the things that we did not say enough on yesterday's show, so I'm taking a moment to say them today, is that Stan Lee was one of those guys that found a cause and through his art kept on the case for his entire career. And had he not been so dedicated, had he not wanted to give us characters that were, well, gay and straight and Asian and black and white and everything in between, had he not wanted to do all of that, our world wouldn't be as well off as it is now. Because in a lot of places, rural communities like I come from, you've never seen a minority until... Your teenage years, and, and then it's just like, whoa, there's different people. So it takes you a while getting used to. But Stan Lee softened that blow for a lot of us because we saw them first in his books. And for the people that were always left out of society, weren't on the, the primetime shows at night, weren't on the newscast at night, weren't on the front pages of magazines at the time, seeing somebody from their background who shared their looks, who shared their beliefs, that was the only inclusion in society that they got. So when it comes to Stan Lee, we have to say a, a little moment of silence for losing one of the last great champions of secretly being a fan of inclusion. Okay, he wasn't that secret about it. He actually said it publicly a whole lot. But it's one of the things to consider. Because as we look at stories on this show, we're always like on one side or the other and we're trying to analyze things. But when it comes to remembrance, when it comes to, you know, going through the past and talking about people of, of import, Stan Lee is going to be one of those guys that as the long view of history passes and, and well, books and everything else is written about him. One of the little-known stories that hasn't been getting enough attention in, in the wake of his death is how hard he championed for inclusion. And that's a lesson that we should all learn. Now, uh, before we get out of here, we've got to talk a little bit about Jim Acosta. Because if you want to know something freaky, okay, uh, there was a doctored video. There was a confrontation that really wasn't a confrontation. Donald Trump didn't want to answer questions from Jim Acosta from CNN. So, after he, he built up this fake video or shared this fake video from Infowars.com and made this huge deal about what a terrible, rotten person he was, President Donald Trump and the White House press rejected Jim Acosta's well, credentials. Now, if you thought that that was going to go unchecked by CNN, let me read you the case of Cable News Networks Incorporated and James Acosta versus Donald J. Trump, John F. Kennedy, William Shine, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the United States Secret Service, Randolph D. Ailes, and John Doe, an unknown agent with the Secret Service. Uh, those are all the, the, the defendants in a complaint brought forward by CNN. And one of the things is, is in their in introduction, which I really encourage. I know they're boring, okay? I know that there's a lot of legalese in there, but we have Google, and you can look up what those words mean. If you have never, ever done it before, please take a moment and read this criminal complaint, because some of the things in it are pure gold, including, well, in the introduction section, number five, 
Yeah, there's they're they're numbered. There's so many of them. <clears throat> the president, uh, after the, after he did this to Jim Acosta, uh, well, basically said it's my presidential right. I can do what I want to. He's rude. He's disrespectful. But number five of the introduction of this complaint between CNN and all those people I named, says, quote, the framers of our Constitution embraced a, quote, profound national commitment to the principle that debate on public issues should be uninhibited, robust, and wide open, and that it may well include vehement, caustic, and sometimes unpleasantly sharp attacks on government and public officials. New York Times versus Sullivan, 1964. The president lacks the authority to quash, quote, the sort of robust political debate encouraged by the First Amendment, a debate that is, quote, bound to produce speech that is critical for those who hold public office. Guess what that one came from? Hustler Magazine versus Jerry Falwell, 1988. Yeah, they're citing everything that ever had to do with basic First Amendment expression. Oh, and, and they go on to say, you know, quote, the protection afforded news gathering under the First Amendment. Guarantee the freedom of the press requires that access to the White House not be denied arbitrarily or for less than compelling reasons. That comes from Cheryl versus Knight in D.C. Circuit Court in 1977. Look, regardless of what you think about all of this situation, the criminal complaint filed by CNN is a litany of cases where not only does this seem like they're saying, hey, you infringed upon our First Amendment rights, we would like our press credentials back, but it looks like that this fight could be the precedent fight for all interactions between the press and the White House going forward. Think about this. It's an unusual case. It's kind of a spectacular, uh, <laughs> spectacular case to go through once you look at the salacious videos and you read the criminal complaint, which goes on for pages and pages and pages. And oh, my God, I had to pop a second bag of popcorn. But when you go through all of it, uh, besides just being, ooh, somebody done pulled the tea on Donald Trump. It does show you that this is not just an argument set up for CNN's case. This is going to be a case that should it go through and should it be deemed that CNN, the plaintiff in this case, was indeed the correct party. All of those statutes that I just went through, the, the, the Hustler versus Falwell and all of that stuff, those will, this will add to it yet another level of protection of free speech. And I know what you're thinking, but Shaggy, God, why do we need to protect the free speech? It's in the First Amendment. And yeah, you would be right, but okay. First Amendment has a boatload of addendums. A lot of them. If you get a free evening and want to drive yourself insane, I, I recommend that you look them up. But when it comes to CNN going after the president, what they're trying to do not only is restore their press credentials, but they're trying to say that the United States White House, its press corps, the Secret Service, and the guy that occupies the place, the President of the United States, cannot absurd the First Amendment when it benefits their cause. They can't silence a free and open media because they don't like what is being said. 
And with all of that other stuff, the, you know, the trials that I gave you, especially, you know, New York Times versus Sullivan from 1964, where they said debate being robust is actually a vital part of government. Expect if the case goes to trial and CNN wins for this to be just as highly cited when it comes to presidential access presidential access and White House access as the New York Times versus Sullivan Act is is it's going to basically be a real kind of crazy circus from here all out. How will it all shake out? Well, we'll find out soon. The White House is uh, yet to release an official statement at this time. Uh, till next time though, guys, be safe. Love you mean it. Get in by.